Well, good evening, everybody. Um, my name is Joel Stegman. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, uh, I am actually a, a church planner in residence here at Hope right now, and I'm in the process of uh, launching a church from Hope that will open in January named Resurrection City Church. And uh, it is my uh, privilege and honor to get to plant a church out of Hope, and uh, it's also my privilege and honor to get to be here with you tonight and to wrap up uh, the book of Exodus. Brian is gone tonight. I believe he's at home watching the Packers right now. Um, I'm just kidding. Brian is at a wedding. Um, so, uh, but um, I am closing up the book of Exodus tonight, which means uh, if you've been counting, if you've been paying attention, last week you were like, wait a sec, didn't we end up in chapter 34 last week? And there are 40 chapters in the book of Exodus, which means we are going to be covering five chapters of the book of Exodus to close it out tonight. So the plan is to go uh, through every verse line by line, and I'll give you updates on the Packer game while we're going, um, so that when we get home by 10 o'clock, you won't have missed anything. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. I am going to uh, summarize a lot of it, and then we're going to land the plane at the very end of the book. Um, but what we're going to be doing is we're going to be uh, wrapping everything up by talking about uh, what it was that the Exodus was for. Right? We're going we're gonna to go back to the whole point that we did this thing, and the book of Exodus is going to explain to us God's plan from the very beginning, and everything that has happened up until then was for the purpose of what happens at the very end of the book. So we're going uh, to break it down, and we're going to talk about uh, the end of the book of Exodus, but also then the beginning of something else that happens as the book of Exodus ends, a launching point for the rest of the people of God uh, going forward from here, okay? But before we do that, um, we're going to have to talk about where we've come from. It's the first of my five points tonight. So what we're going to do is we're going to quickly uh, summarize everything that's kind of come and led to this point so we can understand the significance of what happens at the very end of the book of Exodus. And for those of you who remember going a few weeks back, the big thing that has happened in the life of Israel is the golden calf incident has occurred. So if you're here for the first time and you're not sure what that, what that means, what happened is... Um, God had liberated his, his people, Israel, from slavery. He had uh, taken them through the Red Sea. He had uh, defeated this great enemy, this great king, Pharaoh, and set them free uh, so that they're no longer slaves. And he said, I want you to come out and I want you to worship me and me alone. And so they're camped out uh, at, on the, at the foot of this mountain and Moses goes up for a while, and while he's gone, the people of Israel start to get a little bit antsy, and the first thing that they do as they get antsy is they decide, let's make a golden calf and let's worship that thing, because we're really not sure about this Moses guy, and we're not sure about this God that set us free. Even though he just liberated us from slavery, and he just set us free um, and, and wiped out our enemies forever, we have no reason to fear them any longer. And they still go and they worship uh, this calf. And it's in, in this calf, and it's a huge deal, right? It impacts the rest of the book of Exodus as we go, because what happened is Israel is testing God's faithfulness uh, to them, and and they're putting in danger all the work that has happened before them, before by God, uh, so that there's a there's a it seems like there's a chance as you read through the book of Exodus that that all of this might have been for nothing. Right? And we, we've been talking about that for the last 
uh, few weeks. And so I'll refer you back to those sermons if you want to uh, dig into exactly what happens between Moses and God and, and the people of Israel as they're trying uh, to figure this out. But you have to understand that coming out of that incident, incident um, there is a lot of tension now between uh, God and Moses. It's, it's, it's like if, uh, if a, a spouse uh, caught their, their spouse cheating on them, right? And maybe they both decided, we want to reconcile, we want to make this work, right? They, and and, and the, the, uh, the, the cheating spouse is like, I'm really sorry, I want to make this right. Um, but there's still going to be some tension. There's still going to be some unease and some discomfort going forward. There's going to be trust issues between those two. Um, perhaps dreams that they had had of raising a family together, of, of going on vacations, of, of having uh, kids and growing old and dying together. Those things all of a sudden seem like they might be in jeopardy. And, um, and there's going to be some scars, at least for a while, that are going to come out of that. And that's kind of what's going on here after the golden calf incident. God is, God is upset. He feels like Israel has, been, has cheated on him with some other God that they just decided to make themselves. And so, um, and so uh, Moses uh, and God talk a lot. And that, that happens in chapters 33 and 34. And Moses begs God to stay with them. He begs God not to leave them and, and for his presence to come and dwell with them. Because just think about it. Without God and without his presence, what was Israel before God set them free? They were a, a group of slaves hanging out, uh, doing the work of a despot who is ordering them around and, and making them do stuff. And they had no ability to set themselves free. They're the, they're the type of nation that no one is going to come alongside and, and help out except God. And so without him, they're nothing. They're, they're, they're truly nothing. And so, so what they have to do now is they have to move forward and they have to do what God has, has told them to do. And the trust that has been broken between them is going to be restored. And that's what we're going to talk about today um, as, we, as we work through this. And so what happens is in, in chapters 35 to the beginning of chapter 40, um, we actually just get, uh, we just get a story about Israel building the tabernacle and some other things for it. And they just go line by line, and it's almost exactly like what we read in some other chapters. So we're, we're getting details that say um, that Israel is building the tabernacle just like uh, they were supposed to do. And it kind of goes through it, and that's why we're not going to go through it line by line, because it's kind, of a, a, it's kind of just going back over what had happened before. But we are going to talk about why it's important that they did it. So let me just run through it really quick. In chapter 35, it talks about how they gathered materials and actually lists all the materials that they grabbed because they are the ones that God specifically said, these are the materials you need to get together. And then in chapter 36, it actually details the building of the tabernacle, which is a callback to chapter 26, where uh, they're given instructions to build the tabernacle. And that's kind of the pattern going forward. Chapter 37, verses 1 to 9, they build the ark in the pattern of what God had told them to do in chapter 25, verses 10 through 22. In chapter 37, 10 to 15, they build the table that's going to go in the Holy of Holies. And in it, that's a, a recap of 25, 23 to 30. In 37, 31 to 40, they build the lampstand, which is a recap of chapter 25. And then in chapter 38, uh, they build an altar of burnt offering, which is a recap of 27. 
It goes on. In the rest of chapter 38, uh, they build a courtyard outside of the temple or outside the tabernacle. And recapping first, uh, chapter 27, in chapter 39, they talk about the building of all these different things that go on the priestly garment, something called the ephod, the breastplate, the other garments, recapping everything that's happened in, in chapter 28. All right? So uh, you might be asking, like, why is this? Important. Why did we need to have all of these things listed before? Couldn't we have gotten a couple of verses that just said, and then Israel did everything that God told them to do? And for, you know, maybe it could, have, it could have gone that way, but the reason that's important that in the book that we're, we have all these things listed is because it shows that Israel is doing everything that it was supposed to do to, tr- to show that they're repenting to show that they want God to be with them still. And so we're actually given that list to show us how seriously they're taking everything, that they do everything in the way that God had told them to do it. And, and it shows that, that they're, trying to, uh, they're trying to show God that they've repented, that they want to reconcile, and they want to honor the fact that he has still chosen to be with them despite the fact uh, that they scorned him by building this golden calf. Now, a couple other things uh, that I want to just highlight for you as we go through here. Uh, in chapter 35, verses 30 to 35, uh, it says that, Then Moses said to the Israelites, See, the Lord has chosen Bezalel, son of Uri, son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, and he has filled them with the Spirit of God, with wisdom, with understanding, with knowledge, and with all kinds of skills, to make artistic designs for work in gold, silver, and bronze, to cut and set stones, to work in wood, and to engage in all kinds of artistic crafts. And he began, or, and he has given both him and Ohaliab, son of Ahisamech, of the tribe of Dan, sorry, I didn't practice those beforehand, uh, the ability to teach others. He has filled them with skill to do all kinds of work as engravers, designers, embroiderers in blue, purple, and scarlet yarn, and fine linen and weavers, all of them skilled with workers in design. So but here's, here's the important thing that, that it says uh, here. We'll go back a slide. Um, we're told that the Spirit of God actually comes and rests on a couple of Israelites so that they're able to make sure that all of this happens in the way that they're supposed to. And the reason I wanted to to just stop and to dwell on that really quickly as we're kind of running through at a breakneck pace here through these uh, chapters is to say that even in the case where Israel is showing their repentance and showing their desire to be obedient to God, we're told that even then, God comes and rests on them to make it so that they can accomplish it. So if you heard what I was saying before about how Israel is showing that they're obedient to God and you're thinking, that's, that's, that must be the point. It must be about us showing God that, like, how good we are. Look how good we are at earning this. That's not the point at all. It's actually all about how God comes and, 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 and dwells these builders through his spirit so that they're able to, to carry out the task that he has asked for them to do. And in chapter 39, verses 42 to 43, we're told that the Israelites had done all the work just as the Lord had commanded Moses. And Moses goes and inspected the work and saw that they had done it just as the Lord commanded. So Moses blessed them. So we're told that everything that, we, that Israel does here to build the tabernacle and everything around it is exactly what they're supposed to do. To the point where Moses goes around and says, you know what, this is, this is A-OK. Good job, guys. We're all good here. And we're able to move on to the next part, which is the very end of the book, all right? And that is where uh, the part where God's presence comes and rests on them. And this is, I'm going to read here the last uh, few verses of the book of Exodus. This is how the book actually ends. 
Exodus 40, uh, verses 34 to 38. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. I just want to pause there. Uh, Here's what's going on here. Um, The cloud that, that represents God's presence comes and rests on this tabernacle, this tent that they're building, and it's so thick that Moses can't even get inside of it. Now, I was at the state fair a week ago on what I found out later was the busiest day in the history of the state fair, and I like could not even walk. Like I was getting pushed out of Sweet Martha's or wherever I was trying to go because there were people everywhere. Right? I was. I was. It was completely filled up, and I think that that's the image that we should have here of this. Like it is so thick and filled inside of this tabernacle. God's presence is so thick. It's not used to having people come inside of it, right? It's not used to having sinful humans come and dwell inside of it with them, that it crowds people out of it when Moses tries to come in. That's, that's the, the magnitude of God and the presence that we're dealing with here when we talk about his presence coming to rest here. It keeps going uh, in verses uh, 36 to 38. In all the travels of the Israelites, whenever the cloud lifted from above the tabernacle, they would set out. But if the cloud did not lift, they did not set out until the day it lifted. So the cloud of the Lord was over the tabernacle by day, and fire was in the cloud by night, in sight of all the Israelites during all their travels. So here's, here's and this is how the book ends. This is it right here. We're told that Israel doesn't go anywhere or do anything unless God's presence lifts up and go somewhere, and then they follow it. They pack up the tabernacle, they go and they follow it wherever it goes, and when it stops, they build the tabernacle again, God's presence comes and rests on it. That's the picture that we're being told. And, and what, uh, what we see here that's of note is that Israel has a complete and radical dependence on God to where they don't move or go anywhere until his presence goes out in front of them. And just to pause and as a point of application, uh, just ask yourself, how often do I depend on God so much to where I don't do anything unless I feel like, unless I know that what I'm doing is a part of his will? How often do you actually pause to pray before you do important things? How often do you actually pause to read scripture, to ask other friends, to, to test God's spirit and wait for him to tell you uh, what it is that you should go out and do I, I know when I ask myself that question, I'm, I'm a little bit embarrassed of how little I tend to do that. But Israel has, a, has the whole system set up to where they don't do that. Um, they, don't, they don't even think of going anywhere until God tells them to do it. And I also want us to pause at the, the, the imagery here. So we have uh, the idea of this big cloud and the idea of, of fire. And that is reminiscent of other things that have happened in the book of Exodus. The, uh, the burning bush, right, in chapter 3. Uh, the pillar of fire in Exodus 13. Uh, and when God's presence comes down and rests on Mount Sinai in Exodus 19. We have all of the same imagery. So when we see this imagery, we're being trained to think God's presence is here. God is in the midst of his people. God is leading them. He's directing them. He's going out and fighting for them. When we see this, this is what it looks like when God comes. And this, this presence, this dwelling presence of God we see is the center of everything. Walter Brueggemann says, this presence-filled place, the tabernacle, becomes the center and focus of Israel's life. 
This company of erstwhile slaves now becomes the caretakers, custodians, and possessors of the very place and device where the glory of God has chosen to dwell on earth. Now, I want to pause here because I think this idea of presence is something that we kind of struggle to understand. In a world where we're connected so well with everything, the idea of, of needing to be in the same place as something as it happens is really lost on us. Like, how many of you are big Packer fans in here tonight? Okay, a few of you. You don't have to go to Lambeau Field, or is it? I don't even know. Is it in Chicago? I, who cares? Uh, you don't have to go to the game to watch it, right? You can sit at home and you can watch it, and, and frankly, you're going to know what's going on a little, even better. If you just watch it on your TV, you're going to be more well-informed about what's happening. So the, the idea of having to be in the, physical, the same physical location of something else in a world with the internet, in the world with YouTube and podcasts and 24-hour news, uh, it just kind of gets lost on us. But I, I want to spend a little bit of time kind of talking about the way in which presence works on us in a way uh, that really matters. So we can really understand how important it is that God is dwelling, that his, his presence is with his people. So we can kind of get why that matters. And it's going to have a payoff for us as we keep going. All right? So think, here I have a couple of examples here. Think about it like this. Um, Tar we're in the headquarters of Target here in the Twin Cities, right? And if you've, not if you've ever not lived in the Twin Cities, which I have, Target is just another store to you. I, when I, I grew up going, uh, I went to NDSU in Fargo, and I had friends from the Twin Cities who were like, man, I go to Target and get all my clothes, and I, get, I just shop there for everything. And I'm like, why do you go to Target to do that stuff? That doesn't make any, you drive all the way across town just to go to Target. But then I move down here, I'm like, I get it now. Target's a huge deal. And it's not because, uh, it's not because like, the store is so much better than any other store. And, and it, Target's a great store, so don't hear me wrong. I think Target's a great place. But the fact that Target is located here in the Twin Cities means that the, the presence of Target really works on us in some pretty major ways, right? Like the Targets around here are way nicer than Targets other places. Just trust me, all right? And, and we probably all know someone who works at either a, a Target store or at the Target headquarters, right? So that presence really matters, and it means a lot more to go to a Target here or to talk about Target in the Twin Cities than it does up in Fargo or wherever else, okay? So that's one idea of, of kind of how presence works on us. Let, let me give you another example. So in honor of the Taylor Swift concert last weekend, I, I, came, up, I came up with a thought experiment. So I went to school up in Fargo, but I'm actually from a town in northern Minnesota that's even smaller, Yes, there are cities smaller than Fargo that exist. It's a town called Crookston. There's only about 8,000 people that live in it. There's nothing special about this city. Most of the time when I ask people if they've heard of it, I get blank stares. Okay? But imagine if international pop superstar Taylor Swift decided to buy a house in Crookston. All of a sudden, this town becomes way more important. And everybody knows that Taylor Swift has chosen to dwell in this city. That's a huge deal. Like, you might actually bump into her at the local Hugo's, the grocery store in Crookstead, okay? You might know the mailman who delivers mail to her, right? You might know the realtor that sold her house to her. Maybe for a national night out, she's going to host a block party or something like that, right? That's a big deal. And, 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 what you're, and when you go on Wikipedia, it's going to maybe say, Taylor Swift lives in Crookston, Minnesota. And then everyone's going to be like, well, there's no Wikipedia entry for Crookston because why would they give a Crookston a Wikipedia account, right? But... But, but seriously, like, 
what that would communicate, that Taylor Swift could live anywhere in the world, would, we would expect her to live in New York or, or L.A. or something, but has chosen to make her home, despite all that, in Crookston, says quite a bit. And that's what we're talking about when we talk about how uh, God, the king of the universe, the God who created everything, who just took down the greatest empire the world had ever seen up until that point, is choosing to dwell in this dinky little tent in the middle of the wilderness with a group of former slaves. It's a huge deal. And it should communicate to you the importance of God choosing to make known to not just Israel, but everyone around them that he's choosing to dwell with them. He could dwell anywhere, right? He's everywhere at once, but he's choosing to make it manifestly known to everybody that this is where I live, this is where I dwell. And that's a really, really big deal. And that's how the book of Exodus ends, okay? That the book of Exodus ends with like, kind of this crossroads where we see that they've rebounded from that golden calf incident, that God has said, I'm gonna be with you and I'm coming to actually dwell with you, right? So the end, right? Right, sermon's over, come on up, worship, band. That's actually not true because if you know the rest of the story of the rest of the Bible, you know that they don't actually live happily ever after, right? That's, that's the nice thing about having the rest of our Bibles. We know that despite the happy ending of Exodus, uh, things don't exactly go as planned, because Israel continues to put the covenant in danger by doing things like building golden calves and worshiping them and, and going and, and following other gods or, or trusting in other nations around them more than Yahweh. And so uh, what happens is uh, the, this dwelling God continues to remain faithful to them, but he keeps warning me, he keeps saying, listen, if you guys keep this up, if you continue to do this, I'm going, I'm going to let you go into exile and I'm actually going to leave my temple. Which is, which is what they eventually build. The tabernacle, this, this temporary uh, and mobile tent gets turned into this beautiful uh, temple building. And God continually tells them, listen, listen, I'm, I'm, I'm not gonna stick around here. And actually in, in, the, in the book of Ezekiel, we get this image where the presence of God actually gets up and leaves the temple. And it's not long after that that the uh, nation of Babylon comes crashing in, destroys the temple, uh, kind of burns the city of Jerusalem to the ground and takes up everybody uh, from Israel with them and takes them into captivity, right? But this dwelling God, the one who said, I'm going to be with you no matter what, is still faithful to them through that. And even though the people eventually come back in the book of Ezra and Nehemiah and they rebuild the temple, we get no scene like we do here in the, at the very end of Exodus or in 1 Kings when the temple is built where God's presence comes and rests on the temple. Okay? And that takes us to the role of the tabernacle in the New Testament. Because what's the big thing that happens in the New Testament? This guy shows up, right? Okay? And that's really important. And, and actually, it's, it has a lot to do with the temple. Uh, G.K. Beale says that, and I'm going to break all this down here. So let me read the quote to you, and then we'll kind of walk, walk through it. The incarnate Christ was God's presence descending to earth from heaven in a way as never before. Okay, so that's the first thing. The second thing is after Christ, who is the true expression of the true temple, ascended to heaven, the heavenly temple again began to descend in the form of the spirit and expanded by growing through incorporating people into it. So what he's saying is that Jesus comes, Jesus is God's presence, it dwells with us, and then when Jesus goes back and ascends to heaven after the cross and the resurrection, when his spirit comes, that's us. Let me break all that down. I'll walk through a few passages. Okay, John 1, 14. 
says that the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. This is maybe a verse that you've read before. If you actually dig into the Greek, or if you're reading this in the original Greek, when you come across that word, which is translated dwelling, you see that is the Greek word skeanu, which means to tent or encamp, i.e. figuratively to occupy as a mansion, or especially to reside as God did in the tabernacle of old, a symbol of protection and communion, to dwell. So if you're reading this in the actual Greek, what you're actually reading is the word became flesh and made his, and he tabernacled among us. He, made, he pitched his tent among us. So if you're, if you're reading this in the Greek and if you know well your history, you're, the bells and whistles are going off in your head and you're like, wait a second. This is supposed to make me think of Exodus when God comes and he, he dwells in the tabernacle of his people. That's the image that we get here in the book of John when John in his prologue is talking about Jesus, God becoming a man, putting on, instead of, uh, instead of putting on a tent, he puts on flesh and he comes and he dwells with his people just like in the Exodus. Okay? Now, of course, Jesus, he ascends to heaven. We, we have that in the book of Acts, that Jesus has, has left, but God's presence has not left. In, in the, the account of Pentecost in the book of Acts, what we get is we get this picture of all the disciples, they're hanging out after Jesus has left. They're kind of moping around because they don't really know what to do now. Jesus has left. What the heck are we supposed to do? He said some weird things about the Holy Spirit coming and being with us, but we really don't know what to do. When all of a sudden, suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Okay, that idea. Filled the whole house. Just like, just like God's presence in the tabernacle. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. So a couple things I want to highlight there. First of all, uh, a violent rushing wind comes and, and fills the room. Okay, This storm imagery should make us think of the cloud or should make us think of uh, of kind of the great, the great storm and wind imagery that we get throughout the book of Exodus whenever God's presence is described. And then the idea of these tongues of fire resting above them should also call us back to the book of Exodus where God's presence is described as a burning bush or a pillar of fire, right? And so it's subtle. It's a little bit behind the scenes, and it's maybe not even the main point of this, of this book of this part of the book of Acts, but what it's saying is God's presence, just like when he came to dwell with his people in the temple, has now come through his spirit and is dwelling with his people. And so this is us, right? When we believe in Jesus, when we're justified, when we're in Christ, his spirit comes and it dwells in us. And what that means is that idea of God's presence dwelling with his people in Israel is now transferred to us. And that's a really, really cool concept, I think. And, and, and I'm not making this up because in the rest of the, of the New Testament, we get other passages where different uh, New Testament authors kind of break this down and explain what this means and why this is important. And so that takes us to the last part of the sermon here, application for us as God's temple. I have three application points. The first, when we ask the question, what does it mean to be God's temple if God is dwelling with us through his spirit as we believe in Jesus, then we should, um, we're called to be holy, all right? Um, I skipped something, dang it, I had something, okay. All right, 
Let me back up. All right, I'm backing up because this is really good, and I want to make sure I say it. All right, we are at a crossroads just like the people at the very end of the book of Exodus, right? God's presence has come and dwell with us. Well, now we're supposed to go out and we're supposed to ask, what does it look like to live in this way? Now think about it, because this is actually the gospel, right? We have all built our own golden calves, right? We have all broken trust with the God of the universe who set his love on us. We've chased after and worshiped other things. And we've been, we have, we have uh, gone after them in sin and in rejection of God, and he has come to dwell with us anyway, okay? So this idea of temple means that we're at the same place as the people of Israel are at the very end of the book of Exodus. We're in the same place. And the New Testament authors pick up on this when they say things like, we're supposed to be holy, all right? Um, in uh, the, the book of 2 Corinthians, uh, in chapter 6, verses 16, Paul says, what agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? For we are the temple of the living God. So the idea that he's saying here is, Listen, if you're the temple of God, then you need to be set apart, right? You can't build golden calves inside of God's presence. It just doesn't mix, right? If you're going to be holy, that means that you're going to be set apart like God. You're going to be righteous. You're going to be distinct from everything else around you. And you're not going to engage in idol worship. We're not going to go chase after other things like the people of Israel did. And like we're prone to do constantly, okay? It means living like we actually understand that God's presence dwells in us, which is something we forget all the time. If you're a Vikings fan, you're not going to wear cheese heads around, right? Just, you're, not just, you're just not going to do it. There's not supposed to be a mixing of those two things. And the same is true. If we're holy, if we're God's temple, we're not supposed to go around acting like we're worshiping other things or that we're indwelt by other gods. Okay, we're not supposed to, to go around, and, and we, we do this a lot, you guys, right? We would, a lot of times, we would rather be indwelt by other things, by gods of success, gods of, of sexual fulfillment, gods of wealth, gods of happiness. If we're honest, a lot of times, we would rather be the dwelling place of those gods. We would rather go after and chase those things instead of recognize that we are the temple of the holy and living God, who has saved us, who set us free, who offers us so much more than those gods. And so I'm calling you to, to, to think about that, right? To, to understand the significance of that, just like the Apostle Paul is doing here, all right? The second big point I wanna highlight is what does it mean to be God's temple is we're supposed to be united, that together we form God's temple. And I'm taking this from Ephesians 2, uh, verses 19 to 21, where Paul says, Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but your fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. Now, what Paul is talking about right here is how when, when, when Christ goes up on that cross, the law, which used to divide Jews and Gentiles, gets torn down. Okay, so there's no longer supposed to be any distinction between peoples because the law that, man, that mandated it is completely gone. And so what he's saying is that all peoples, regardless of racial ethnicity, regardless of socioeconomic status, whatever it is, you together are being built up into one holy temple in the Lord. And, and Paul goes on to talk about the importance of unity uh, in chapters three and four of Ephesians. It's a big deal to him, and it's all because of this temple idea, right? 
So what, what that means for us is we can't say something like, like I'm gonna divide myself from other Christians based on something other than the fact, than the fact that God is, his spirit is dwelling in all of us. Right? We're, not, we're not gonna make distinctions. We're not gonna have temples built in on, on, on politics. Right? You're not gonna say something like, maybe that's a temple of, of the living God over there, but we're the better temple over here because we like, have the right politics. Right? And so those uh, other parties, Christians, fine on them, right? but we've got it right over here. Okay, we're not supposed to do stuff like that. Okay, we're called to, to put the spirit of God that unites us all together above any other thing that we would use to separate or make ourselves distinct from other Christians. And we let, I mean, that is really easy to do, right? In a really divided nation, in a really divided society, especially now more than ever, we're called to a radical unity that it goes against the grain, okay? But we're called to it. We're challenged to live that way by the Apostle Paul because the Holy Spirit dwells in all of us. And together, we're making up this temple of God, all right? But here's the truth, okay? We're called to be holy. We're called to be united. But we kind of suck at it, right? We, we kind of are terrible at it, if we're honest. And here's where the third point comes in. Here's where the third reason that being the temple of God is so important. God dwells with us despite our lack of holiness and unity. All right, it's not conditional. We are not, we are, we are not told that we're God's temple because we act a certain way. We're told that we're God's temple because his spirit dwells in us, and that's it. In the book of 1 Corinthians, in, uh, in chapter three, verses 16, Paul says, don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst? Now, if you're just reading that verse, you know, right here on its own, you're like, not a big deal. It seems to, to fit very well with the rest of the things Joel is saying. But when you get the rest of the context of the book of 1 Corinthians, this mean, this, the, the importance of this gets taken to a whole nother level. Because the Corinthians are like the worst group of Christians you could possibly imagine. If you've ever read through that book, just, okay, Paul writes a letter to them where he's kind of responding to a bunch of questions they have and responding to a bunch of issues they have. I'm just going to read through uh, five of them. But there's a lot more than this. Okay, these are the things that the people in Corinth are doing. Okay, some of them are starting factions based on who baptized them or who they follow. I'm of Peter. Well, I'm of I'm of the of Apollos. Well, I'm of Jesus. There's one guy who says that, trying to use the, the Jesus trump card. Okay, all right, he, they're trying to say like I'm better than other people. I'm going to divide myself out from others and define myself based on uh, who I follow or who baptized me. I'm going to factionalize within within the church based on that. Okay? There's one person who's sleeping with his father's wife. Paul, has, Paul actually has to write and tell him, you can't do this anymore, right? Yeah, I know, right? Okay, they're, they're totally making a mockery of the Lord's Supper. Like the rich people who don't have to work as long are showing up to the services and they're getting drunk on the communion wine and eating all the bread. So the people have to work later in the night, show up, and they can't even take communion because it's all gone, okay? okay? They're suing each other. Right? They're having disputes among each other. Instead of getting together and talking it out, they're going and they're hiring lawyers to sue one another. And then on Sundays, they're coming and they're sitting in the same room together and, and worshiping God together. And some of them have even stopped believing in the resurrection of the dead. So it's not just, it's not just character stuff. They're actually not even believing the right things. Okay. So when you get the context of that, you understand how important it is that Paul still says to them, don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst? N.T. Wright has this 
great quote on this. It just blew my mind the first time I read it. You are, the, and he's saying this about, about Corinth, you are the temple of the living God, Paul says. Not to the Philippians he loves so much, because in the book of Philippians, Paul has some really nice things to say to them. Not to the Thessalonians, it's similar. Paul has only good stuff to say to them. In the, in the midst of their suffering and danger, but precisely to the recalcitrant, muddled, problem-ridden Corinthians. This is not, in other words, a sober judgment based on the noticeable holiness or gospel-inspired love or joy of this or that ecclesia, which is just the Greek word for church. It is simply, for Paul, a fact. The living God, who had said he would put his name in the great house in Jerusalem, has put that name upon and within these little surprise communities dotted around the world of the northeastern Mediterranean. Unless we are shocked by this, we have not seen the point. What he's saying is, when you read through the book of 1 Corinthians and you read Paul say to them, listen, despite all your problems, you are still God's temple, we should be shocked because we, we should be thinking, if any church is not gonna be God's temple, it would be that one. And Paul still believes this about them. And so the, the takeaway for us on that point is that if we're God's temple, we should have a total assurance of presence despite our sin, Okay? That means that no matter how messed up we can get, whether it's individual or individually or as a church, okay, it's still God's temple. His presence is still with us. And even though he's calling us to live like that, he's calling us to live holy, to live united, we're still God's temple. We have nothing to worry about. We should have an assurance that no matter how bad things get, God is with us. He has put his spirit into every single one of us in here who follow Christ. And together, we're making up this thing that is so much bigger than ourselves. And his presence is not going to get taken away from that. He said, listen, I'm dwelling here. So as we close, I have a couple of gospel application questions for you. First of all, I want you to dwell on this. I want you to ask yourself, how, how seriously do I heed the call to holiness and unity? Like how seriously, how much does that matter to me? Are there other things that are more important to me? Are there other gods that I want to indwell me more than I do the God of the universe who sent his son to die for us and to rise again so that we could become, so he could dwell with us through his spirit? Okay, do I care about something more than that? And am I compromising the holiness and the unity that we're called to because of that? And then do I remember when I do do that poorly, because I guarantee you, guarantee you, you are all going to suck at this. Do I remember that God dwells with me no matter what? That he has said, listen, I'm putting my spirit in Joel. I'm putting my spirit in you and you and you and you no matter what. I am choosing to dwell with them. Do I remember that when I, when I, when I feel like I've gone too far? I feel like I've gone too, you know, I'm, I'm, I've gone too far this time. Like, there's no way that God wants to be with me right now. Do we believe that? Is that something that we cling to? We're going to close here. And when we do, uh, I'm going to invite all of you to come forward and to take communion. All right? You don't have to be a member at Hope Community Church. We just ask that you're a follower of Jesus while the music, music is playing. And I want you to, to come forward, and I want you to, uh, as you do that, as we are dwelling on this idea of God dwelling with us, I want you to come forward and remember that it's the cross, it's the resurrection, it's the thing that we're doing this in remembrance for that made all this possible for us. So I invite the worship team to come forward, and we're gonna enter into a time of worship. I'll pray to close us.
Father, we, I am just, I am just floored as I think about this idea. Uh, it, it, it blows my mind that despite the fact that, that we are no better than the Israelites, you have chosen to dwell with us no matter what. You've chosen to say, out of all the places I could be in the universe, I'm choosing to be with these people. And I want everybody to know that as my spirit dwells in them. I pray that that would, uh, that would invade our consciousness and it would, uh, it would impact everything that we do, Lord, as we go forth this week. I pray for these people that you would, would be uh, heavy on their thoughts, Lord, as we enter in this time of worship. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.